Matthew chapter 13. This is the second week that we've been in this short little series called Pictures of the Kingdom, where Jesus is describing what the kingdom is like, what we can expect as kingdom citizens, talking to his disciples. He uh, informs us. So just to make it clear, I don't know if how many of you were here last week, but to kind of cover some essential points again. Uh, parables were just stories used to illustrate spiritual truth, which Jesus then tells us about what we can expect in the kingdom. In fact, in verse 10 of chapter, uh, of chapter 13, Jesus tells the disciples that he's telling them the secret things of the kingdom, that he, they're going to get the inside story scoop on what, what God is doing in the world. And I think there's a reason uh, for that is because the disciples had a, probably a growing confusion or, or maybe even a, a level of frustration with all the kingdom discussion. I mean, as Jesus describes why he's here, they had expectations, and uh, they, they saw the miracles, they heard the profound words, they, they heard him describe himself as the Messiah, and they're looking around and going, why, why doesn't everybody get this? Specifically, look at these religious, the, the most important, most learned men in, in, our, in our culture, they don't buy the Messiah thing. So what's happening to the king and the kingdom? So in, in essence, those questions are, are lingering in the background. So Jesus deals with the confusion um, by telling them these stories, stories that reveal to them and us as well um, what God's up to. Who and who won't trust in Christ, in, a, in essence, describing the types of people that will or won't. He describes judgment and the cost of following him, several stories that talk about from the inside position what it, what it means to be a part of the kingdom. He also said in that first section, that first story of Matthew, that Jesus told these stories to conceal the truth from those whose hearts are hard to it. I mean, that, that's, uh, that's true of our world. I mean, the, we've described the, the parable that Jesus told. This is what you can expect. There is four different types of hearts. He calls them soils in the story. There is the hard-hearted person who just repels everything about Jesus and sin and a savior and a gospel, and it finds no home whatsoever. Those, those people are typically easier to spot than others. He also says there are people who have a look like a really deep interest to start with, but their hearts are so uh, shallow that as soon as the cost is realized, they're done. Discipleship? I didn't know that. So they want to know part of, of truly following Christ with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, so they tap out. That's the shallow-hearted person that Jesus described. And then he described the person who has a crowded heart. This, this person simply wants to add Jesus to what they already love, and Jesus won't have it that way. He wants to be the one and only Savior, the, the God, the Lord of our life. And so some people think that the cost of Christ is too expensive. And then he mentions the receptive heart, this person. And this, this person is a person that wraps his mind and heart around his sin and God's provision for his sin. And this person lives now within this kingdom tension of the already and not yet, right? In essence, the kingdom has arrived already in the hearts of men, hasn't it? We were once blind and dead and unresponsive to the gospel. God changes our hearts through confession in Christ alone, and suddenly worship happens. It never happened before. We, we long to serve him. We long to love him. Uh, he's the authority of our life and, and uh, our truth. That's already happened, but there is this tension that we wait for. Uh, one day when he's going to make all things right and new, when sin's going to be eradicated and Satan's going to be dealt with, and, and he really will be recognized everywhere by all men as the Messiah King, right? And so we live in that tension of having the kingdom some in our heart, but waiting for him to finish that work. And so in the meantime, as we talk about and live out our faith, people are going to respond to it in all different kinds of ways. 
The story that we're looking at today is the second parable that Jesus mentions, starting in verse 24. It's called the parable of the, of the weeds. And to be honest with you, I wrestled a little bit with the big picture statement. Every, every week in our preaching collective, we try to write a sentence that just says, this is the big idea. And uh, I, I think you could legitimately come to this passage and, and come to a couple of places to lean into for the big idea. One, you could talk about the opposition to the kingdom of God. Clearly, that's taught here. You could talk about the judgment coming for those who reject the king and the Messiah. That's clearly taught here. But the place that I landed was this, that God is really patient, but not forever. If we want a snapshot of what Jesus is saying to his disciples and, and to us is that God's patience is on display. And, uh, but his patience has a limit, okay? And that's kind of where we're going. Again, this story is a farmer kind of story. And I think most commentators would suggest that Jesus has in mind the same kind of idea to his disciples because they heard him talk about the different soils and the response to the seed of the gospel. And and in in their minds, they see, well, three of them have rejected this truth. Only one's legitimate. What's going to happen to the rejectors? And I think this particular story describes in detail what God is doing eventually with those who reject Jesus okay, and reject his gospel. So let's pick up the story in verse 24 uh, of chapter 13, and then we'll, uh, we'll pray together. And he put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. I gather the wheat into my barn. Let's pray together for God's discernment. God, help us uh, to understand this. Help us to uh, see ourselves in this story, to see from your vantage point. Every bit of truth is intended to soften the hearts of its hearers, so I pray that you do that. I pray, God, that we would uh, have spiritual ears, as Jesus suggests, and eyes to see. We pray this in his name. Amen. Story's pretty simple, right? Pretty easy laid out. Um, There is a farmer, and he is planting wheat. And uh, while he is sleeping, there is an enemy that shows up and decides to plant another kind of seed. And uh, the good seeds and the weeds are going together until such a point the workers realize there's a problem. The weeds are now infiltrated into the good crop, and they suggest to the owner, maybe we could pull those out and have a good harvest, and the owner was too smart for that. He said, now listen, they're intertwined. All the root systems are growing together. At this point, if you pull the weeds, you lose the harvest. So let them grow together, and then eventually when we know what we have, we'll separate the two, have a harvest, and burn what's illegitimate. Now, by the way, this, this particular story wasn't just kind of fabricated in Jesus' mind. This was an ongoing experience in that culture. So much so that enemies would go and then kind of reap bad harvests on their, on their neighbors, on their enemies. The, the Romans had a law against it and all sorts of punishments if you should so perpetrate uh, this on your, on your enemy. 
There's a ton illustrated here, and we only have time for a, for a, sh a few short experiences, but I, I want to leverage into one particular thing I don't think we talk about much, and that is this truth that this passage tells me, that Satan is real and he's busy. Um, let me read to you the interpretation a little bit, again, of what Jesus says about the story in verse 36 to 39. This is what he says. And left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the sons of the kingdom. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Right there, he describes for us the players in the story. Jesus, the son of man, God come in the flesh. He's, that's how he describes himself. The field is the world, pretty clear. The sons of the kingdom, the good seed, are Christians. People, legitimate believers, followers of Christ, see their need and accept the only provision for sin, who is Christ. And then we have the weeds, as he describes them here, are, are the uh, sons of the evil one, those who reject the truth of the gospel. And then you have the enemy, who is Satan, and then you have the reapers, who are the angels. But in my opinion, the essence of this story is the cosmic conflict between what Jesus is doing to bring people into salvation and everything Satan does to try to stop that from happening. There is a huge war going on that we don't talk about much, probably don't like to think about much. Some people have written it off, but we, we've got to deal with it because Jesus is dealing with it here in this, this text. These are other scriptures to bring some, some weight to it. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, Talk to the church about putting on the full armor of God so that we can withstand the schemes of the devil. In describing that, he says this, for we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with, against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the warfare that we're engaged in as believers every day. Uh, Peter said this, he, is, he wrote this short letter, First Peter, to a, a scattered church, a church uh, suffering from persecution. And so he writes these true words. Several subjects in this are about the holiness of God and, and how to live with each other in submission and husbands and wife role and, and how to suffer well. And he wraps up that whole letter with one little particular reminder about what's happening behind the scenes. He says this, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, I'm going to make a confession. I don't live with that truth on, on the front of my thinking all the time. I typically see people as the problem, fundamentally. Do you, don't you? Like if, if people change, if they'd go away or do something different, that things would get fundamentally better. But there's this cosmic conflict. Satan is an enemy of the gospel. He's an enemy of God. Therefore, he's an enemy of God's children. That's the conflict that's going on. And I, I believe that one of Satan's most subtle tricks is to fool people into thinking that he's not real or he's no threat whatsoever. Right? Um, most people, uh, when they think of Satan, kind of have a cartoon character in mind. Uh, red suit, pitchfork, horns, you know, they make cartoons out of this guy. What threat could he possibly be, you know? Or, or some people talk about him all the time in every circumstance, and you're kind of tired of that and kind of go write him off as nuts, you know? I use this illustration at 8 o'clock. They all understood it, but it's like Flip Wilson. Do you remember Flip Wilson? <laughs> I knew there would be the reaction. 8 o'clock said amen to Flip Wilson, so... Uh, <laughs> he was a comedian in the 60s and 70s who had this routine where he said, the devil made me do it. 
When you run into people like that who just say, the devil made me do everything, he's responsible for everything, you get kind of tired and say, I'm just going to write that off because it can't always be him, right? So he's either no threat because he's a cartoon character or somebody overuses him as an excuse and you don't want to hear about it. So we live as if he's not even there. Like there's no conflict whatsoever. There's no opposition to the gospel. Jesus writes this parable to his disciples and therefore to us to tell us what it's going to be like in the kingdom right now as we wait for his returning. And there is opposition. There is a constant um, grinding on us by the adversary. And you know it when you know it. I've told you this before, every person has inclinations, like sin bents, like colors, stripes in us. Not everyone struggles in the same way. I've told you before, I'm a very angry man. If Jesus isn't running my life, I'm an angry, impatient man. And, uh, and that will come out of me if I'm not believing the gospel. A lot of other things come out of me, by the way. And that, that's true of every, every person. So here's how Satan grinds on the church. If your weakness is forgiveness, then he will constantly remind you how other people have hurt you. And you can't, you can't see anything else. All you can see is the offense taken. You don't see yourself as someone who's perpetrated pain on the Savior, as one who needs forgiveness. You just simply know that you've been offended, and so you have forgiveness issues. If your weakness is lust, then he bombs you with impure thoughts. If your weakness is anger, he will point out all the time how disrespected you are and how much more you deserve. If, if your weakness is pride, then he will constantly encourage you to build a world that revolves around you. He tries to stop ministry. He slows us down by reminding us mostly of our failures. He uses labels like guilt to cripple us and tell us that we shouldn't or couldn't. He's a robber of joy He's into telling us predominantly that Jesus isn't enough. He wants to tell the church that somehow the gospel, whatever, let's not deal with the gospel. Let's deal with the other things, the things you need, the things you think you want, the things plus Jesus you want. And it's a very subtle twist, by the way. All you got to do is add just anything else to Jesus alone, the gospel, and you lose it all. So if he just can get you to not necessarily leave Christ, but take up something else, it dissipates. He's great at it. In fact, Jesus said in John 8, he warns us about Satan. He calls him a liar. He's the father of lies. That's what he does. He perpetrates these things on the church. There's another thing that uh, this story tells me uh, more clearly, and that is that Satan's sharpest tool is to counterfeit the real and the good. He doesn't have to present himself as the ultimate picture of evil because most of us probably would notice that. He presents himself as light. He disguises himself that way. In fact, even in this story, the, the weeds that are planted in the field with the good seed are darnel weeds. They are, some call it bearded darnel. In other words, these, these weeds look just like wheat until the harvest. You can't tell them apart. They're growing up together. You can't, that's how come an, an enemy could plant them in your field and get away with ruining your crop because they could grow up the whole time and you'd never see it. And Jesus uses that illustration to describe the, the characteristics of, of the adversary and what he does. In fact, part of, the, part of this Darnell uh, wheat was that it was prone to mold. 
And if they would process, if they wouldn't notice this weed in the midst of their crop and they would process this darnel with their wheat and there was mold in it, it would ruin the whole crop. So the intention, just think about the intention of your enemy in this situation. His intention wasn't to make farming hard. His intention was to ruin the farm. No crop, no profit, no profit, no farm. You lose it all. There, there is a total cataclysmic result of not noticing what the enemy is doing with your crop. So the illustration that Jesus uses tells us what we can expect out of, out of Satan. He's probably not going to show up your door like Marilyn Manson asking you to join the dark side, okay? It's probably not how it's going to go down. He's going to masquerade like an angel of light. He's going to pretend to be almost there. And the subtlety between what's true and what's not true is so fine, you can't perceive it. Right? And here's what he does. He plants people, religions, and I use this term loosely, churches, who don't buy the gospel, who've added something to Jesus alone. At first glance, they look like the real thing, but they lead crowds of people away from saving truth in Jesus Christ. Paul told the church in 2 Corinthians that he is a masquerader. He disguises himself as truth. And all over the, the, uh, the epistles, you see warnings. You even have them from Jesus in, in Matthew 24. He, he told his disciples that when I leave, there are going to be other Christs. Not suggesting other options, suggesting that people provide for them another answer but Christ alone. There are other saviors coming who want to tell you that there's another possible way for you and your sin. The Apostle Paul over and over again talked about false apostles and false ministers. He, in Galatians, the whole intent of that book, that letter, was written to deal with a false gospel. That someone had said, like, Jesus is cool and everything, just add a little bit of work and religion to it. Like, be circumcised and Jesus. And, and, and Paul writes the harshest letter I think he wrote to deal with that one small, little, hard-to-spot perversion. A Hebrew practice that was always happening and always would happen, but now it was suggested that it was also needed for salvation. Work. You put work in anything, you lose what God offers freely through grace, right? We were warned by Peter of false prophets. We were warned uh, again by the writer of Hebrews of false doctrine. He is smooth, right? And here's how smooth he is. He uses nice people. He uses nice people, and they use Christian terms, and they practice faith, and they serve, and they, and they give, and they claim experiences, but Jesus had something to say about that too. In, in Matthew 7, he warned again of, of those who aren't his, but he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Somebody is going to be surprised. And the reality of it is there is so much opposition to the wonderful good news story that we are so crippled and incapable that God paid it That is a profound truth. It's really simple to say, but it blows up every other option. Apart from works, apart from you, your sin, he covers with his holiness and his righteousness. So if Satan is so good at masquerading 
how do you recognize the lies? I'll give you a simple thing. Know the truth. You know how they train bank tellers to figure out um, counterfeit bills? They don't train them with counterfeit bills. They teach them with real currency so that they're absolutely perfected in their feel and sight of the authentic. So that if some false currency showed up, it would just be obvious to them. They would know it right away. There is a reason why nice church people fall into bad things. We are a post-Christian world, but there's still enough of it in us, right? So my generation, everybody went to church that I knew. Everybody was cool with Jesus. Everyone had terms. They went to church on Easter. I mean, they, they had enough at least working knowledge of some story. And here's what happens. If he's going to perpetrate the lie and masquerade as, as light, then here's what he does. He drops names and terms that sound familiar to a bunch of churched people who have forgotten what the gospel is all about. And they look at it and they go, well, that, he's a nice guy. And I remember him saying something about Jesus. It must be good, right? You understand Jehovah's Witness and Mormons, that's what that all is. It's, it's enough truth to disguise itself as light. People buy in it, and the rest of it is a death sentence if Jesus doesn't do something to save them. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm trying to tell you what Jesus said about the kingdom. There is a, a crop growing in the midst of the real out here in this world. And it's not easy to spot. In fact, you're not going to know. It's hard to tell. So here's the truth. The saving gospel, this unbelievable thing that changed my life, that God himself, the one and only, the creating God who always was and always will be, the only God decided to take on human flesh and come to this world to die in my place. And by faith, in his work and his righteousness provided to me, that's the only way anyone's ever saved. That is the exclusivity of the gospel we confess. Everything else, I don't care how close it is, if it's not there, it's not real. Because that's all he cares about. Just don't get there. And you lose it all. So all the other religions in the world are Satan's attempt to make a lie look like truth. Jesus said, that's what the enemy's up to. That's what he wants to do. He's planting lies in the midst of his truth to deceive some. So what do you do about it? Jesus gives us that answer too here. Verses 28 and 29. We're going to go back to the story. Verses 28 and 29. And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Here's, here's what you do. Don't overreact. I love this, because this was written for me, the classic overreactor. If something's broken, I'm a mechanic. I fix it. Not, not tomorrow, not next week, now. You understand? Now, I'm just picturing these guys listening to Jesus tell the story, and you know there's a couple of knuckleheads there, too. Like Peter, he's the ultimate overreactor. The sons of thunder are there. I'll bet you, in their mind, Jesus, you just laid out for us these different types of soils. There is the shallow soil and the crowded soil and the hard soil. And wouldn't it be good? Wouldn't the kingdom be better if I just, we just cleaned that up right now? Like if we exposed everybody and called everybody out so we know who's playing on whose side here, wouldn't that be better? And, of course, Jesus says no, because you'll harm real believers. The harvest isn't ready. You have no idea who the real believer is. 
you understand? You're, you're just going to do damage. And it's important to understand here what we're talking about here, just to, to make a point. We're talking about the world. Okay, some people read this passage and go, the church should take a stand against false teachers in the church and should deal with people who are deceptive. Yes. Okay, the Bible has clear, uh, explicit commands of how to deal with sin in the church and people who lie in the church and deceive and gossip and all those types of things. There's a, there's a lot of mechanisms the church can have to deal with the church. But Jesus is talking about the world, the world you and I live in, the places where we shop, go to school, the places where we work and their neighborhoods, that world. That's where we're supposed to be. The believers are planted in that place. And we're saved, and as a saved people, we're living in a place where people look a lot like us, but who are lost. And so there's a reason why we're planted in this world. One is to be matured by the world's response to us, right? This is called suffering, persecution, rejection. This is another message for another time. But all over the scriptures, the Bible says pressure makes good things. Suffering makes good things. It matures the church and grows us up. So one of the reasons why we're in the, in the world is because God wants to grow us and form us into the image of Jesus. But there's another reason why we're in the world. To influence the wheat. And you don't know who they are. I don't know who they are. But there's a whole bunch of people who would tell me they reject Christ. But I have no idea if God's still doing stuff. If he's not going to redeem them. Now, I realize that some of you might have a perspective of the world that we live in, that you're so tired of it and sick of it, you wish you had a sickle and you could just go to work right now. You might be like Peter or James or whatever, but here's something to remember, okay? Change maybe the way you think about it. Every one of us who calls ourselves a Christian lived as weeds too one time. Every person, right? Rejecting the truth, stubborn, arrogant, stupid, unresponsive, blind, and dead. That's who we were before Christ, right? And so... We are left here for the reason of telling the story of the king and his kingdom to people who we have no idea if God's going to save them or not. We have no idea where they are in the process. The harvest isn't ready. He didn't say time's up. We're still there. People that you, you know, everyone has this list of people, like, they'll never get saved. Not that guy. Right? You have no idea. And if you were to go lopping off and making judgments now, you'd do it wrong. That's what Jesus says right? We are not called to judgment. We're called to influence. That's why the church is here. Tell them of the hope you have. Live as if there's a king of your life. Let them ask good questions of your transformation. Tell them that there's hope and forgiveness. You do that. That's the influence. We got no, we got no game in the judgment thing. You understand? We don't have that ability. And, and by the way, unless we forget this, um, if you don't like to think about it, church has a pretty bad reputation when it comes to judgment. MacArthur wrote this in his commentary. I thought it was worth a read. Listen. In addition to the fact that the church ages for evangelism and not judgment, Christians are not qualified to infallibly distinguish between true and false believers. Every time the church has presumed to do that, it has produced an ungodly bloodbath. When the 4th century Roman Emperor Constantine required every person to make a confession of faith in Christ on pain of death, he succeeded in killing many true believers who refused to submit to his spurious brand of Christianity. 
During the Crusades of the Middle Ages, unbelievable brutality was committed against non-Christians, especially Muslims and, and Jews, in the name of the Prince of Peace. During the Inquisition, in reaction to the Protestant Reformation, countless thousands of Christians who did not submit to the dogma and authority of the Roman Catholic Church were imprisoned, tortured, and executed. This is not the age of God's judgment and certainly not of judgment and execution by the church. While on the, on the earth, the Lord himself would not lift a finger against his enemies. To Judas, who betrayed him to his death, he offered the first sip at the Last Supper to, as a gesture of love and a final appeal for belief. For those who falsely accused him and sent him to the cross, he asked forgiveness. How then can his followers consider themselves ever justified in taking the role of judge or avenger or executioner in this present age? Believers are not God's instruments of judgment and destruction, but of truth and grace. Toward unbelievers, we are not to have hearts of condemnation, but of compassion. The church is called to preach and teach against sin and all unrighteousness, but in doing that, its purpose is not to judge, but to win souls, not to punish, but to convert souls of the evil one into sons of the king. Make sense? I am so glad. Tell me this. Are you glad that God was patient with you? I trust that that little murmur was really deep rooted. <laughs> so are you okay in waiting for God's harvest to come in before we get all carried away with trying to discern who is and who isn't his? Are you okay? I mean, you were cool with God being patient with you. Are you okay with him being patient with everybody else? Nod your head because that's the right answer. Okay. Of course. We have to wait for the harvest to come in. If that's true, then your attitude will be changed. Because I know Christians who would want to do a couple of things. One is they want to complain a lot about the world, the field that God is doing his work in. And two, they want to isolate themselves from it. If you really believe that God is patiently winning and harvesting his people, then your attitude should totally change. You don't have room for judgment. You're not going to complain. You said you were okay with God taking his time and being patient. You're not going to isolate because you know now you're an influence, a godly, holy influence, a messenger of the gospel that he will use to bring some to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Change your attitude completely. Changes it completely. Excited that you get to participate with what God's doing. There is one last obvious lesson that we've got to talk about from this passage. It's the, it's the part that everybody wishes you didn't have to talk about. It's the judgment. Um, and that's where I got kind of the big idea of this message. God's patient, but not forever. And I need you to listen to this because most of what I said before was probably to those of you who would say, I love Jesus. No doubt about it. Some of you are sitting here today, and you know about him, but you, by your own admission, would say, I don't love Jesus that way. I'm not, I don't believe unto salvation. It's not, that's not my heart. You've got to listen to me, because I'm going to tell you some things that Jesus says in this parable about God's patience. Some people make the fatal mistake confusing God's restraint as God's approval. Like, he, he hasn't done anything yet. So they question whether he has an interest or, or if he's real or if he's able to deal with it. And, and you have to understand something here. Jesus lays this out clearly that God has an intention about waiting. His intention is to bring his people home, all of them. Okay? 
And you're sitting on the outside wondering if God can just tolerate whatever you're doing and how you're resisting him and maybe questioning whether he has an interest or cares or is alive at all. And, and you need to understand this, that God is waiting and time is running out. There are many, many, many promises in the scriptures. They make bumper stickers and bracelets out of them. I love them. There's life and peace and joy. There's forgiveness and hope in Jesus. That's true. But there's a promise here that Jesus gives us. They don't make bumper stickers out of it. It's the promise of judgment. Look at verses 40 to 43. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica this same truth. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Those are equally true promises. Life and hope and joy and eternal uh, non-separation from God are promises that Christians hang on to. But if you're sitting here going, I don't know if I buy Christ, then this is your promise. Your promise is that your sin, you have to bear. Jesus bore my sin, but you have to stand it alone with God. And what it looks like from, from this passage is that it's going to be horrendous. Um, don't buy the lie that everybody goes to heaven. Don't buy the lie of the books that people are writing that there's no such thing as hell, because there is. There's judgment. Don't buy the lie that annihilation is your outcome, that you simply die and it ceases to exist. Or, or, or buy the lie that, that you have all the time in the world to deal with some of these things we're talking about. You have no idea. The reality of it is judgment is real. And it is coming. And I need you to hear me on this. The most loving thing I can tell you is that God is that holy that he won't overlook one sin. Not one. And if you choose to go against his provision for your sin, you will stand on your own two broken legs before the Father and he will deal with sin in a place called hell. And the reason why that's loving is if I've got the answer to your future, to your longings and your hope, and I didn't tell you, that would be evil. But the truth is you can, you can know Christ too. The only escape is, is Jesus. It's, it's confessing your sin. I mean, confession is a fairly um, easy thing to get your brain around. I, I understand it might be difficult to our hearts, but confession is simply agreeing with what God already knows about us. Like, you're not telling him anything he doesn't already know. You simply agree that I'm the sinner. I'm the one with the need. I'm the one with the inability. I am who you've said in the gospel. I am that person. You confess, you repent. Repentance is turning around, leaving your sin and pursuing the Savior. He is the Lord of your life. doesn't mean you do it all perfect. It just means you're pursuing what God wants for your life. You recognize those things as evil and you hate those things as the gospel says to hate them. And you believe. You believe everything about the gospel story. That Jesus came in, in the flesh and gave his life a ransom for many. That's the story. And here's the reality of it. One day, everybody's going to give an account of their life before God. And the question that's going to be asked is a very simple one. 
How did you respond to the gracious and loving offer of God's forgiveness through Jesus alone? One question. One question, there's going to be a field of people who say, I fell into it. I, I wrapped my arms around it. My only hope was that that was true. And some people will say, I rejected it. I thought it was smarter than that. I thought it was a crutch. And to those people who reject this wonderful free gift, they will have to endure this judgment. That's what God's doing in the kingdom. That's why these stories are shared here in this Matthew 13 for us. So we can see God's plan from a vantage point. My, my prayer for you is that you heard it. If you want to talk to somebody when we're done about knowing Christ, please do. Don't leave. Come, there's going to be folks down here after we're done today. I'd love to chat with you. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gospel. This wonderful gospel that saves Thank you for uh, how clearly and precisely it identifies us so that uh, no more argument needs to be made. God, thank you for your patience as you continue to work in this world to bring about the salvation of people who some, even at this point, have no clue who you are. God, thank you that you've left, left us here to participate in what you're doing in this world. God, forgive us, your church, from getting uh, finicky and um, having bad attitudes about what our purpose is. God, let us enjoy the fact that we can tell people the hope of Christ. God, let us open our mouths and tell them that. And you'd save, we pray this in Christ's name, amen.